Jermaine, I, I, I like when you start them. <laughs> I don't have a I don't have a pithy call and response this time. It's cool. It's cool. We'll just have to think of a good one for next time. Right, right. <laughs> well, our guest is wearing the the Beastie Boys t shirt. They had plenty of call and response. What's the time? <laughs> <laughs> so, hey, everybody, welcome to Journey into Sound. I'm JC. My name is Mike Joseph. And we have a special guest here today. You may have heard us mention her on our last episode, I should say, Sandy Loam. Hello, uh, hello. And Sandy, tell us about yourself. <laughs> yeah, so, well, let me tell them my actual name, because I, I go by both a lot, but I'm okay. Sandra Sinai. I'm, but I, I go by Sandy Loam often, and I have studied music my whole life. I got a bachelor's degree in classical guitar. And then I moved to New York and got a master's in classical composition from the, the Aaron Copeland School of Music. And I've studied a lot of musicology and I write, I educate, I play a lot. I'm in a few bands right now that I'll plug later. And generally about on the scene in the New York queer music scene, playing music, being my beautiful black trans radiant self. Happy Pride. You're doing the damn thing. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So welcome. And actually, we should talk about this later, Mike. I forgot. Are we doing this as a bonus episode? No, this can be a real episode. We can theoretically do two episodes next month. Okay. Yeah. So we're continuing a conversation that we started. Observance of Black Music Month. And Sandy, given your background and the myriad things you're involved in musically, you're the perfect person to come in and talk about the history behind some of this stuff and dynamics yeah, I mean, that play out today <laughs> i was listening to the first half but i was very excited i was like yeah okay this is like so many <laughs> things i'm completely with this on this level and thinking about this all the time and trying to actualize it and take inspiration from it great well so i actually i want to let you kick us off in that vein but first i i, I might want to go on a little bit of a tangent uh-oh because we're, okay, we're starting me. with the tangent yeah well, because you and I, Mike, have been to a couple different shows this oh, summer yeah. concert season. Oh, yeah. And I have some notes. <laughs> oh, say word. <laughs> I ain't take no notes. So I, I took my partner to the Reset Festival, which is still going on. It's touring to a couple different cities right now. We saw the Forest Hills stop in Queens, New York. Well, we went to one day. It's a three-day festival, and I think LCD Sound System headlines. We went to the day with James Blake, who I've been wanting to see live for a very long time and did not disappoint, and Steve Lacey, who gets a lot of play around our house, and I really dig his music. I know him from the internet. The the band, the internet. The band, the internet. (laughs) (laughs) And... It was one of those moments where, so Sid, I think, was kind of marketed to be the breakout star of that band. Right. And again, I knew Steve had some solo stuff out there, but I had one of those, man, I am old moments because I did not realize how much the kids are into this dude. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. I mean, Bad Habit was a huge number one record. So I have learned subsequently. Yeah. So he's a spectacular performer. The songs are great. He performs really well. He plays off the crowd. He has a very down-to-earth vibe, the banter he had with the crowd. But I noticed one thing about the stage setup. And 
there's a lot that goes into a stage setup, a lot of people who have input. And so I can't say this is on him, (laughs) but there's a big LCD screen in the back as a backdrop, which is common. But then there's these other two towers that are in the middle of the stage, which is fine. They move around they show kind of ancillary graphics with what's going on on the main LCD screen. But his backing band was in completely behind those towers to the point where I didn't realize if he had an actual drummer or a drum track for the first half of the show because you couldn't see him. (laughs) And everybody behind that is in shadow. His backup singers, he had three on the side of the stage, were dressed all in black and wearing head coverings so that they disappeared when you got enough haze going on the stage. And at no point did he acknowledge any of the backing band. And I, I thought that was a little odd. That is odd. It was definitely the Steve show. And I was like, there's a story there that I don't know that I want to find out. <laughs> That's really interesting. The deliberate obscuring of the entire band. Yeah. I don't um, know. There are also a couple points where he had to not switch guitar, but would stop with the guitar and just kind of sing in mid-song. Mm. And he didn't hand the guitar to the stagehand. The stagehand would come out, he would put his arms up in a Jesus pose, and the stagehand would take the guitar off him. Um, I <laughs> Which, can't. Trying to be fair, maybe there was calculation behind that, but it, it just gave off a vibe of what is going on with this guy. <laughs> that right, all sounds yeah. very strange. <laughs> yeah, because... But it makes the guitar thing makes me think of in the opening scene of the Philip Glass opera Akhenaten, right? So we're yeah. meeting the Pharaoh Akhenaten, right? Super hot <laughs> shit. And the opera starts with Akhenaten coming on stage and singing butt ass naked, right? The whole nine yards, right? And he stands there with his arms and legs spread, singing the thing. And then some guys pick him up, and while the minimalist Philip Glass is happening, right? They slowly rotate him 360 degrees forward and lower him into his pants because he does not put his pants on. He does not put his pants on one leg at a time. (laughs) That's wild. Wow. That's kind of what that's giving to me, right? Like, if you can justify that, right? If you're big enough and hot shit enough to, like, justify that kind of performed <laughs> ego trip selling the ego trip that do you like <laughs> i mean there's also an element of enjoy it while it lasts right um, right because right. i subsequently have done some internet sleuth- sleuthing and the hashtag steve lacy disaster tour oh nah is, oh. <laughs> it's, it's funny oh Uh-oh. there's this clip of People threw stuff on the stage and he's getting irritated about it. And there's another point where the crowd is singing along and they don't know the lyrics beyond a certain point. <laughs> and it's one of those things. There's another clip of someone's like, hey, Steve, say hello to my mom. And he's like, can you shut the fuck up? And it goes right into the song. From... <laughs> I mean, that's so, funny. I would say some shit like that. <laughs> I mean, that was hell. pretty funny because he doesn't miss a beat. <laughs> right. Like, I know your mom. Who are you? But some of the articles online say because in the TikTok era where you accumulate a lot of your fan base from that crowd, it tends to be a certain type of fan. And right. it's not the same crowd that Mick Jagger nah. <laughs> attracted back in the day. No, definitely not. <laughs> Wow. But anyway, <laughs> taking nothing away from him as an artist, I enjoy his music. The show yeah. was great. 
Um, just some notes. <laughs> okay. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I've never seen Steve Lacey live. I saw him perform at the Grammys. Right. You were there this year. Yeah. It was a awkward, he performed with Thundercat. Right. It was the least staged performance of the entire show, like the least choreographed. It was ah. kind of just a band playing and it felt kind of awkward, but I've never seen a full set of his. So. Gotcha. This is all good information I have. <laughs> I, w- okay. I would go see him again. Again. Okay. Just things I notice. Things you notice, <laughs> indeed. And t- to be fair, it did not seem to affect the crowd's enthusiasm one bit. Like, gotcha. again, I was amazed at how much the kids were into it. And yeah. Cool. Anyway. Yeah. That was a tangent. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I guess the primary question we asked last episode is, what is black music? And the answer being the conclusion we came to, all music is black music. Right. Oh, mm-hmm. everything. And Sandy, again, given your background and your area of study, you can go deep into, like we said, th- that's not just rhetoric. <laughs> yeah, oh, absolutely. And it's like, if there is any music that's not Black music, or, I mean, I, I am happy to use Black in a very large sense. I'm a pan-Africanist right. of the variety where I think everybody in the entire world gets to be part of Africa, if you're really down with it. But yeah, particularly of quote-unquote Western music. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, if there's anything that's not black music, it's some European classical music. And even right. then, it's black music that just spent a really, really long time trying to forget it. Right. They just have <laughs> hundreds of years head start on trying to not be that. Uh, <laughs> and even then, it's everywhere. And so, I mean, this rings again, you're involved in a lot of projects, mm-hmm. but. This hits particularly close to home for you because you're the first black trans woman. In the history of country music television. Yes, I appear in the music video for Mia Byrne's song. Come on, Mia Byrne is a country artist, a trans woman that I play with. Uh, I actually play bass in her band, but I was playing drums in that music. I didn't know I was going to be in that music video. I thought I was just going to hang out at the music video shoot. And then I show up and they say, okay. You ready? You ready to be in the video? Like, sure, okay. So how did that uh, happen? If you played bass on the song, well, well, why even, did they switch? I, I didn't even play bass on the song because all the stuff on her album that just came out, Rhinestone Tomboy, mm-hmm. that whole album was recorded before I even met her. I gotcha, met her last gotcha. November or something like, and when we met, she already then sent me like the secret pre-release link of the whole album. Gotcha. Um, but I play bass in her live band. And the live sound is very different from the studio sound with her. The live sound is less of a country sound and more like blues rock jam band deadhead, right? Where we play with the form and we can get pretty out there. But yeah, so this was just, I was going, because the music video for that was shot at Purgatory, which is one of my favorite venues in New York City. And that a lot of queer music specifically, and a lot of, a lot of other things too, Hmm. A lot of stuff happens there. My old punk band played a show there with Urban Waste, which is an old, like, 80s New York hardcore. And all the old heads that came to the Urban Waste show were like, this place feels like CBGB's. Nice. Yeah, so it's that kind of a vibe. And it's a great place to shoot a video. And I was really just going to hang out. And... And I end up in the video and the video starts getting played. This is, for me, a burn. This is not even the first time. 
Because her last music video before that, she and her girlfriend were the first trans women to share, to kiss first, yeah, lesbian kiss between trans women ever in broadcast television. Where, where did that air? Also on CMT. Gotcha. Yeah, her studio output is country oriented and she's on the Kill Rock Stars Nashville imprint and, and deeply embedded gotcha. in that world and that scene. And she gets a lot of press for this as the up and coming trans yeah. people in country music. And then being in her band and being part of that scene, then I have the added layer of, I'm a, I mean, we talk a lot about there have been black people in country music the whole time. We even mm-hmm. talk right. a little bit about there's been queerness in country music the whole time. Black queerness, that's hard to come by. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Or yeah. actually, it's very easy to come by, but it's hard to say out loud. Right? It's hard to say out gotcha. loud. And it's mm. really not documented very well. Yeah, that makes sense. Panama Jackson from Very Smart Brothers has a podcast that I, I actually shared with you all. He did an episode with Reese Palmer, who's another Black female country artist. And she talks about the plight of the Black country artists and the history from Charlie Pride being the only one signed to a major label anyway. And she mentions in Panama's podcast a research paper by this woman whose name is on the tip of my tongue. Give me a second. But she did a, a research paper from Emory University about how country music got this reputation as kind of being the music of white supremacy. <laughs> so to, say, to pull no punches. <laughs> yeah, Nadine Hubbs also talks about this. She has a great book, Rednecks, Queers, and Country Music. That's about the queer uh, history of country. Oh, wow. And also, she's working right now on a book about country music and, and Mexico, right? Which is a whole okay. other aspect, Which, yeah. right? Well, That's it, huge. The woman I'm thinking of is Amanda Marie Martinez. And I listened to her talk, and she talks about this goes beyond country. She's like, you can't really stylistically pin country music. Country is a marketing genre. And Mm. same could be said for pop music and any other genre. It's less about the particular sounds and more about who are we selling it to. And with country music in particular, they cultivated a certain audience that they could then turn around. I mean, the CMA has fiercely protected... (laughs) the image of country music because they want to be able to market it and give it to advertisers in a certain package. And that packaging has traditionally excluded people that they thought weren't marketably viable right. to those advertisers. And again, so Mike and I have talked in the past about the introduction of sound scan and how that changed pop music because suddenly people realized, oh, we can sell this other stuff too. So what's considered pop a lot more things started being considered pop leading to what you've got today where how do you define the nebulous term right. <laughs> pop music, right. right? Yeah, I mean, and actually the perfect example of this who I didn't listen to all the last so I don't know if you got to him, but Lil Nas X. Yeah. Right? Because that was how he really started popping off was because he did the remix with Billy Ray Cyrus, the old time right. remix, which happened because they wouldn't play the just him version of Old Town Road on country music radio. radio. And so Billy Ray Cyrus was like, I will do a feature on this 
and then they'll play it on country radio because I'm Billy Ray Cyrus. So they have to. And the wildest (laughs) part of that to me is that whole song is built off of a Trent Reznor sample. Yeah. A Trent Reznor. (laughs) I know. It kills me. Trent Reznor playing the village show. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. As I'm thinking about all of this stuff, it's not confusing because I think hyper marketing, pinpoint marketing can be really destructive in a lot of ways. Capitalism. Yeah, that, right. Exactly. <laughs> but it kind of boils down to that. But I was also thinking Luke Combs, who's a really popular country singer right now, his big hit is a remake of Fast Car. Oh, okay. And I'm thinking back to the original version of Fast Car. And I'm like, you throw a fiddle in that, and it's some motherfucking countries. It would fit right on mm-hmm. country radio, which I assume is also what Luke Combs did. Like, right. He, <laughs> and I, I don't know. This whole discussion and the last discussion as well is just like, why are there all of these lines here? And I think it really does boil down to capitalism and yeah. marketing. Mm-hmm. And I'm not wholly anti-capitalist, but <laughs> <laughs> again, I do think that that capitalism and marketing can be really, really destructive. And sow the seeds for situations where people who do not think critically are receiving all of this information. They're like, well, this ain't your music. Who are you? What are you doing here? But it's been like this for a long time. As I'm moving and going through my stuff and throwing stuff out, I was rereading a book by Anita Pointer of the Pointer Sisters who passed away a few months ago. And she talks about how the Pointer Sisters were the first female Black group to play at the Grand Ole Opry in 1974, 1975, something like that. And she also talks about how the Pointer Sisters were never really seen by the Black community as a Black group because they didn't sing. Because Deep not, soul. And they did, but they also sang adult contemporary pop and country, and right. they had their little 40s classic Andrew Sisters outfits, and they did that kind of singing. And... My whole life as a black person, I just want to be whoever the fuck I want to be. And it sucks that on every side, there's a sense, or at least in my day, there was a sense that if you did not subscribe to a certain series of attributes, that you were inauthentic in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, I mean, there was one point where Whitney Houston was considered a sellout making white music. Right. 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 She got booed at the what, Soul what, what year Awards. was that? Yeah, 1989. So, yeah. I mean, by the simple fact of waking up in the morning in my skin, whatever I do is automatically a black thing. Yeah, like, right. I agree. Right. <laughs> I agree. I'm not dipping myself in Clorox. It's frustrating. And again, it's just like if people were given the tools to think critically, if critical thinking was encouraged, we wouldn't have all of these problems. We wouldn't have all yeah. of these issues. We wouldn't mm-hmm. be having this conversation. Yeah. The other example that I have in my mind, in the documentary Summer of Soul, you see a fifth, fifth dimension. dimension. Yeah, yeah, fifth dimension, right? Yeah. Talk about playing the Harlem Cultural Festival and thousands of black people show up and they say, wait a minute, fifth dimension were black? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Well, and we mentioned on the last episode, even Sly and the Family Stone and Parliament Funkadelic. Right. They weren't getting the majority of their airplay on black radio back in the day, but those are quintessentially black bands. Right, right. I mean, Sly is integrated, but Sly himself is black, so the band right, was exactly. a black band. <laughs> but I mean, actually, t- going back to the beginning of our conversation, where you're talking about the show that you went to 
earlier this week, I went to see Michelle and Degiacello. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. Who, yeah. <laughs> oh, where was that? It was at Sony Hall in Times Square slash Hell's Kitchen. Yeah. Oh, I wish I went to that. Yeah. And it was my fourth time seeing her. She was actually the very first concert I ever went to in 1994, the first show that I ever saw. And her whole career is kind of a case study in what kind of music am I allowed to make? What kind of music can I make? Because she's made hip hop records. She has made funk records. She has made folk records. She has made jazz records. She is one of those people who I think has actually never achieved the level of success commensurate with her musicianship. I think there are several reasons for that. One of which is that she is unapologetically queer and was so at a time when that wasn't accepted, but also because she doesn't fit. Like there is a quote, she did an interview for Vibe 25 years ago, and she was like, I'm continually frustrated because people in the music industry think that all Black people listen to is hip-hop and R. Kelly. Right. And, you know, I mean... that They only know how to market hip-hop and R. Kelly to Black people. Right. <laughs> right. Right. And she is, to me, ultimate musician. And there are people who would maybe listen to an album like Bitter, which is one of my favorite albums of hers, which is a total lo-fi, folky breakup album, kind of like a Joni record. Ain't no slapping bass. There's no hip hop. There's nothing like that. And people would say, well, this isn't a black album. We can't market this to black people. But there are black Black folks. Black people love Joni Mitchell. Yes, right, right. That too. But it's like... Again, going back to the marketing and capitalism conversation, we're not a monolith. No one is a monolith, right? Music is music. You market good music to people. And then it turns into a conversation about radio and MTV and all of these other entities that kind of play a part in that, particularly in the 80s and 90s, that ghettoization of musical genres as well. Where you go back to the, the thriller conversation where... There's two different stories. One is that MTV wouldn't play Michael because he was black, which I don't know if that's entirely true because MTV did play black artists before Michael. I have my own theory on this. So (laughs) go ahead. The second part of that is MTV was happy to play black artists who were not funk or R&B or dance music. They played Tina Turner videos. They played Past the Duchy. They played 1999. Mm-hmm. So, yes, it's 100% racist. But yeah. the racism is based on... Who they thought their audience was. Right, right, exactly. So this ties into the history of cable television, which is my wheelhouse. And the whole point of cable television, when it started, was to get signal to people who couldn't get it through a satellite or through the antenna. So... Literally, the people who cable TV was marketed towards were people who lived in the valleys and the hills, like literally, pardon language, hillbillies. <laughs> right. So the audience that this cable network assumed was tuning into them were the people who listened to hillbilly music. Right. And I think that an artist like Michael Jackson, like the dancing, is there's such a visual component 
to his music that was undeniable would would thriller have sold as much as it did if it weren't for the music video component that people were like oh i gotta see this guy right hearing him is one thing but seeing him is a whole other (laughs) yeah i swear to god i literally just got the etymology of the word hillbilly (laughs) i was like oh shit (laughs) that's what that means yeah so one thing that's really interesting to me because we're talking a lot about the marketing side of this right and that the perspective of the corporate guys like marketing for various audiences but to me what's really interesting is actually michelle and Ocello is a great example of this the perspective of working musicians, right? Because that's also a big part of it. We talk about Michelle and Ocello as being into everything, right? And doing all these different styles, right? And yeah, being everything. Yeah. yeah, being able to play everything and being like a consummate musician, right? The musicianship is very there in every yes. single thing that, that she does. And it's because before she was doing her solo records, right? She was one of the hardest working bass players in DC. Right? Mm, right. She played in every DC go-go band. Mm, did not and, know that. Yeah. And there's so many stories like that. And I mean, that's also the of jazz, right? Why are all session musicians who played on each other's records, all session musicians who played on each other's records and all people that cut their teeth playing show tunes in dance bands, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> playing yeah. show tunes in dance bands. And that's why they know all those show tunes. And that's why they can blow over my favorite things for 30 minutes. Right? (laughs) It's their job. Yeah. And for me, this is actually how I got into jazz. Because I didn't really listen to jazz growing up. But then I got a gig where I had to play four hours of background music at a French restaurant. And I had five days to prepare for this. And it was big money. This was my first job in college, right? And I, I was like, okay, I can learn four hours of classical sheet music in the next five days, or I could give myself the crash course on like, I know more or less what guys are doing. I know the general idea. Let me see if I can figure out how to improvise. Yeah. And so then I started playing it, and then I started listening to jazz after I was already playing it for a living. Mm. And that is kind of actually how all of the great jazz musicians, particularly the earlier generations of them before jazz was really sedimented as a cultural form, right? That is how everyone came up, right? That is how jazz grew out of pop music of the era. And so there's so much of it that's tied to the specific conditions. Also, musicians aren't just making this consumable product that can be marketed, right? It's professionals doing their job, right? That's Mm, how you pay rent. And that is really foundational to me because a lot of things even that would be white music right that a lot of people that try to make racist white music if you're surrounded by it in your workplace or in your upbringing right you're going to start liking some of it better than the other stuff and then all of a sudden you're a fan of something Mm. well that's to the point mike made in last episode why you hear so much hip-hop production on country radio nowadays (laughs) right it's bleeding over into that and some and of it, these redneck motherfuckers are actually rapping. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, power to them. Florida Georgia line, go on. <laughs> <laughs> but there's also sometimes the sense of when music culturally bleeds over like that. I'm thinking of jazz in particular, where 
it becomes not seen as black contemporary music anymore. Like it gets co-opted in a way. Yeah. Where music well, that was rock and roll. Yeah, exactly. I exactly. mean, yeah, you know, that's the whole story behind rock and roll. Yeah. This also ties into how you and I met Sandy at a at Zealand the, Arter yeah. show, but the whole way that band came about, which we talked about in the last episode was, he was looking to play around with a bunch of different genres and basically went on Reddit and was like, throw some genres in a hat. And the first two that come up, I'll try to blend them together. So, I mean, the consummate musicians will play whatever. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's about the challenge of learning a different rhythmic style or learning a different picking pattern or whatever. It's less about, oh, I need to stay within these lines to make the music that fits this particular descriptor as much as how can I become the best drummer? Is that going to be in modern jazz or heavy metal? What's going to challenge me? I want to be able to do all of it, whatever it is. Right. Or it's going to be because a certain amount of having the time to sit down and learn a new style of music just for fun. That's kind of a luxury, right? Sometimes it's just like, man, I've never played salsa before. But there's a salsa band that needs a keyboard player. I guess I'm learning <laughs> some Montudos. Yeah, it's what you got to do. I'm wondering, Sandra, if as a musician, have you ever been told you can't do that in terms of anything that you've played or been a part of? I have been told I can't do that. I've been pretty lucky in, well, okay, here's the, the answer. Obviously the answer is yes. And actually the first example <laughs> that came to mind was playing background music at a French restaurant because what I would be told is don't play too loud, right? And the thing is the playing loud happens if I get too into it, right? But then I'm supposed to be in the background. People can't hear their dinner conversations. So I'm supposed to keep it down. And actually, what was fun is that after that, I started getting a lot of compliments about my sensitive touch uh, and dynamic (laughs) control (laughs) (laughs) within that constraint. Really, the big one for me, where I've gotten it the most has been in classical music departments. Because I've always really wanted to make really genre fusion-y music that incorporates from a lot of things. And... A lot of the professors that I had were just people that really only knew about one area of music, right? They knew about the classical music and its descendants. And occasionally it's discontents. And so they were really ill-equipped to help me. And they were really ill-equipped to understand the thing I was doing, the things I was bringing to the table. Yeah. They didn't have the context for it. And so that's where I've gotten the most pushback. That's really interesting. Another friend of mine, Radar Ellis, is a professor at Berklee School of Music, and he teaches their hip-hop class. To their credit, they have a hip-hop class, Mm -hmm. but he talks about the struggle with administration about what gets included in the canon. Right. And wanting to expand the curriculum and what will they consider, what will they bestow certification, or what's the word I'm looking for? Validation to, musically. So I'm sure that's a struggle at a lot of different programs. Like, what classes do we even include? And then once we have 
a hip hop class? Do we have a turntablism specific course? Do we have a beat making course? Right. Like a new school, Rob Swift teaches at the new school right now. He's doing a turntablism class at the new school. I was like, okay, this coming up, that was never have been no. thought of when we were <laughs> college <laughs> age. But I no, mean, <laughs> definitely not. Yeah, and I mean, even within the classical music world, but actually, Sergei Prokofiev, the great Soviet composer, his grandson is a composer who wrote a concerto for turntables and orchestra. Oh, wow. Nice. Um, nice. Which is wild that we're doing that now. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and it's only going to continue to to expand and evolve. I mean, you just think about how technology has impacted music over the past 10 years, yet alone the past 30 to 50. Mm-hmm. Auto-tune and sampling techniques. And it used to be you couldn't get more than eight tracks, and then you had to double the tape. Now you got an infinite number of tracks on your board. <laughs> you wow, yeah. And as for me, coming up in that and being able to do the genre exploding, the playing around with this is really enhanced by the home recording revolution also in a lot of ways, right? Because you can have just as many tracks as you want. You can have hundreds of tracks in your session doing all different things. And you can have four different bands or aesthetics that you're bouncing between in a single session if you want now. Yeah. Well, and also how it's consumed impacts that as well. Right. I've questioned whether the kids today still listen to full LPs, but songs used to be consistently three to four minutes long because of radio format. Now, songs are getting shorter because they want you to click more often. Right. And that's how they make their money. So here's capitalism rearing its ugly head again. Ugly head again. (laughs) And here I am listening to the two-minute Zoomer song and then also listening... I'm not even the three, four minute radio song. I'm like bumping like the 20 minute, minute Pink Floyd. songs, right? Yeah. Like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's interesting because there's a lot of stuff that I feel like we just won't ever see again. Not because it can't be done, but because culturally there's no viable place to put it. Or at least we won't see it commercially. Anyway, sure. the Mars Volta is still touring and they have no qualms about putting a 45-minute song right. <laughs> album. Right. But how much traction is that going to get in the quote-unquote marketplace And if you're not already established? Things are going to get super niche. Oh, and I th- part of that is technology. Part of that is culture shifting. Part of that is capitalism. We don't have anything resembling a monoculture anymore outside of maybe Taylor Swift. Yeah. There will never be another Michael Jackson. There'll never be another Michael Jackson. Just because you got too many choices now. Yeah. I mean, it's hard, I think, and this is a little bit of a tangent, it's hard to tell people who were not around in 1988 or whenever that- You only had five choices for what to watch on TV. <laughs> right. You could only listen to so many certain records. Like you could only do this stuff. Now, when you have the opportunity to take part in everything that exists and has ever existed, yeah, to get that many people to galvanize around one specific thing just is not something that's possible anymore. Yeah. I was going to say is one thing that also comes out of this is like, 
the micro genre, right? Like genres have also mm-hmm. gotten smaller, right? Like, can somebody explain to me the difference between noise and digital hardcore? And honestly, <laughs> sometimes like industrial hip hop, death grip shit, all of yeah. the people in the scene doing those things, they all sound pretty much the same. The same. Right? It's a very similar aesthetic, but they all have a lot of opinions about which subgenre is which that it really doesn't make sense. And when I really first started noticing this was, y'all know a, a Vaporwave? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, okay, yeah. I have so, a friend who's a Vaporwave DJ. He does a right, night yeah, in Denver. So got, when Vaporwave started happening, right, and it's all these extremely online trans people discovering DJ Screw and saying, what if we put that in a shopping mall? Right, but then there's the Vapor Trap and Mall Soft and VHS right. Pop and Future Funk and Hypnagogic Drift and Echo Jams. Yeah. <laughs> that same friend introduced me to Witch House. And right. aside from what it sounds like aesthetically, there's this whole intentional effort to obscure, to make it non-searchable because right. they titled the songs with weird ACS, ASCII characters so you can't type it in to search for it and they're just like super niche super contained and insular scene which i'm here for it if that's what you want to do (laughs) that's really it's interesting and it's like these things have always been there i just think people and this is another symptom of technology you get to find your tribe a lot more easily than you did in the 90s if you were a hardcore person and you were like, who else do I know that is in this scene? And I have to read a magazine or place a personal ad or something like that. Right. Well, You go to the local show and see the same face. Yeah, but what I would even say is it's not even a magazine personal ad. Closer with the same faces, but actually one thing that is a lot less true than it used to be is being connected to a lineage within that field, right? This still is even the case if you go to an IRL punk scene, right? Right? I've been around in the punk scene, right? There's these old headbands that are still around, right? Like Mm -hmm. Urban Waste and things like that. And then it's so easy to meet a guy who remembers a guy who remembers a guy who remembers (laughs) some CBGBs, right? Some of that is New York-centric too. New York and LA centric. But I wonder if it's even easier to find these people in smaller cities or smaller towns. Because when there's... Definitely with the internet. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, there's a certain amount that's New York and LA, but the punk band I was in, we did a Midwest tour. And as our encore on the Midwest tour, we covered a couple of Zero Boys songs. Okay. Right? And so classic 80s hardcore band, Zero Boys was like, the big one from the Midwest instead of New York or the Bay, right? right? And there is still such a deep emotional connection to that, right? And so I think it is definitely geography-centric, but I think it runs deeper and in a lot more places than just the big cities. Although the big cities are the perfect breeding grounds for this. Well, I mean, everybody had their own local scene, too, right? for sure. It's just like, did that particular scene happen to have a breakout band that got signed where people would know them nationally? Or I go back to Toledo, Ohio, and there are still 
guys who are living out their glory days from the 70s and like, <laughs> they are rock stars in their scene right <laughs> because they just never got beyond right the yeah. state area <laughs> i remember all of the four bands from when i was in the frederick maryland punk scene i remember right. them and loved them very fondly <laughs> as if they were micro celebrities but no one knows it right right well so as we always do We've kind of gone around the world on this. Yeah, I mean, that is our aesthetic. <laughs> we got, I can't even call them listener letters, just some listener feedback. Glad to hear that people are listening. I don't have it pulled up right now. Oh, I was about I, to I, say, I, I, yes, thank you to everyone who has provided feedback. We greatly appreciate it. Yeah. Sandy, you're involved in a lot of stuff. I know you got things um, to plug. Yeah, Tell I us what's going on. <laughs> I... I don't have access to my calendar right now, or I'd pull up some gig dates, but I play in three bands at the moment. I play in the Mia Byrne band, which we were talking about. Right. And then I play in the Swan Real band, which is a indie rock kind of vibe. And it's the same three people as the Mia Byrne band, but we all play different things. So I play bass in <laughs> like Mia's that. band, and I play drums in Swan's band. Yeah, and then I have a new project I just started that I'm very excited about, but I wish I could give you probably... When is this airing? Well, in the next couple weeks. Like, if you could, like, edit on later once we have an Instagram, telling everybody to follow us. Because we don't yeah. have an Instagram yet. You could definitely uh, put it in the show notes. So. Yeah. This new band is it's called The Auntie Diaries. Okay. Uh, is that related to the Kendrick song? It sure is. Uh, I love it. <laughs> yeah, and we're four trans women. Three of us are black. And the other one's Jewish. She's with us. And it's like a emo rap jam band. Um, okay. So there's some like La Dispute energy in there. Our lead singer also has a project called The Worm Mother. And in Worm Mother, she does a lot of industrial noise, rap, digital, hardcore, that whole scene of things. <laughs> it's a lot of her poetry and her freestyling. And we're grooving out with it. And everybody gets to solo. It's a lot of fun. I'm really excited about this band. Very cool. Um, nice. the, are the dilators still? The still dilators the... are no longer a thing. I'm sorry to oh, say. No. Yeah, the dilators broke up uh, a couple months ago now. Sorry, um, those were some fun shows. I know, I did enjoy that band, but singers. <laughs> Things happen. Yeah, I happens. get it. <laughs> singers and the whole nine yards. Yeah, so those are the three bands I'm in right now. We got to yeah. get our Auntie Diaries whole list of... Instagram up and running. So... Please shoot me links and we'll have that in yes, the show notes absolutely. for people. Yeah, I'm really excited for this summer. I'm trying to record some of my own solo music, which I've never recorded and released by Unsolo Music, but I have some some stuff cooking. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. All right. <sighs> Thank you so much for having me. This is a blast. Oh, yes. our pleasure. Thank you for coming on. Yeah. Absolutely. Any other parting words before we get out of here? I know, Mike, you've got an appointment later today. So <laughs> Check out that Michelle and Deggio Cello record. And actually, if you're not familiar with her, check out her whole damn oh, catalog. Oh, yeah, literally yeah. like the whole catalog. In including the album. John Mellencamp uh, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> we can leave that out. That was fine. It got it, her an audience. 
The new right. record that dropped last week, the new record with Brandy Younger, who's like a jazz oh, work yeah. player. I the love her. Yeah. I love her. Corey Henry has a feature on there. Mark Giuliano, who's one of my favorite jazz drummers. Like that guy's like, oh man, I love, yeah. Yeah. It's so good. Yeah. Seeking out good music. Yeah. I'm going to keep going to shows and I, if I have notes throughout the summer. Oh, yeah. we should talk about, there's a story that I don't know behind LL Cool J canceling his New York and New Jersey stops on his big hip hop 50 tour. Like of all the cities to cancel. I think <laughs> what I was thinking is that Rock the Bells is actually playing New York City the beginning of August. Yeah, And that's true. there was some kind of conflict where the same artist can't play multiple oh, shows in a particular a, time a, period. Yeah, within a oh, radius. Yeah, yeah, within but they would have known that before they booked it. Like, they sold tickets. They had been right. promoting this. I also, and maybe this is a topic for another episode, I was telling my coworker he wasn't aware of the lawsuit where, so there was a Rock the Bells festival that used to tour in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm started in San Bernardino, California, and apparently LL sued them for the naming rights and then took over all of the social media handles and the website. So the Rock the Bells website that you see today mm-hmm. used to be run by Gorilla Union was the name of the other company. There's actually a documentary about, because the big claim to fame for the original Rock the Bells festival was they reunited Wu-Tang. Mm. There's a whole documentary about that that actually some friends of mine produced. This is how I know this. But they've also wiped a lot of evidence of that whole lawsuit from the internet, but you can't find the court transcript. So (laughs) there is proof, but you got to look for it. And that in and of itself, I think is a whole other documentary, probably. (laughs) LL Cool J is litigious as hell. (laughs) Yeah, man. I mean, I'm surprised he hasn't gone after after Run the Jewels, if that's how he's going to be. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. He's no Marvin Gaye estate. <laughs> oh, God. Oh. <laughs> uh, Marvin Gaye estate like Oprah. You get a lawsuit. You get a lawsuit. You get a lawsuit. <laughs> Everybody gets a Look lawsuit. There's a lawsuit. <laughs> oh, shit. All right, all right y'all. Okay. And we'll see you all Always next time. Always a pleasure. We'll catch y'all next yeah, time. Yeah, this is great.